0: You're listening to Lozano-Smith's podcast, where we discuss important changes in the law and legal decisions that affect public agencies. Welcome, and thank you for joining us today for another Lozano-Smith podcast. Today, we're going to be talking about students and laws, both laws that have passed during the pandemic, laws that uh, we anticipate or issues we anticipate as we head into the 21-22 school year, as well as some pending legislation now that uh, bridges the gap, uh, relates to COVID-19 and the the pandemic we've all experienced since March of 2020, but attempts to address student issues going into the next school year in relation to that. I'm Sloan Simmons. I'll be your host today out of Lozano Smith's Sacramento office, one of the co-leaders of the firm's litigation practice group and a a committed student attorney. I'm really lucky to be joined today by... Both Ruth Mendek out of our Fresno office and one of the co-leaders of Lozano-Smith Student Practice Group, a 20-year-plus expert in these issues and one of our um, finest student attorneys, as well as Josh Whiteside, another one of our great student attorneys from that student practice group team. Um, He's out of our San Luis Obispo office. um, And I feel comfortable saying Josh is probably up to speed on COVID-19-related student issues, Uh, better than anyone in Lozano Smith's uh, stable of student attorneys, if not anyone in the state. So it is a a treasure to have both you guys here today, an honor to have you guys both here today. Then it's the first time we've gotten a chat since sometime last year on a podcast because of the hiatus we've taken. So thank you for being here and welcome. Thank you, Sloan. Thank you, Sloan. Nice to be back. So why don't we start with laws that were passed that relate to students that occurred during the pandemic and maybe went under the radars for for some of our school districts around the state because of the vast array of other things they've been focusing on over the past year.
1: Sure. Um, it, it's interesting because there's, you know, several of these bills that we talked about at the end of uh, 2019 and as uh, 2020 came around, but we haven't really had a chance to see them in action and see how they're actually gonna play out here in the real world now that we've got you know more students back on campus and that. So one of those is um, uh, what we refer to as Assembly Bill 1127, and this is one that expanded the um, rights of uh, victims of bullying to transfer. So now um, as of last year, if you have a victim of bullying that requests uh, a transfer to another school site, the um, and there is another school in your district, then those students have the right to uh, move to that other uh, school site in your in your district. And if there is no other school in the in your district where that student would be um, appropriate to attend, you know, based on the grade levels, um, then the uh, resident district is prohibited from preventing that student from transferring to another district. So, This uh, touches on both the intra-district rights of a student and also the inter-district rights of a student. And another, um, the reason why this is important now as we're getting ready for the next school year is because this is a provision that relates to um, a, a student's attendance options, it's something that is required to be in the annual notice that is provided to parents and students. So as we are getting ready for the next school year, um, this is a provision that we want to make sure our policies are updated on and our um, annual notices are also updated on so that we have that um, correct information available um, to parents so that we do support and um, take care of those uh, students who do have have felt that they are victims of bullying. So. Ruth, I remember when
0: they they first added bullying uh, or, or being the victim of bullying as a basis for transfer several years ago now. And I recall at that point in time, um, at least working with some districts, to clarify within their policy what we meant by that, including, at least for some districts, specifically tying that entitlement to a finding that a student had been a victim of bullying vis-a-vis the other side of the coin, that another student had been disciplined for for bullying under 48900R. Um, and I know that there's a difference in terms of scope of overarching bullying policies that districts have that aren't necessarily tied to the specific definition under 48900R. Is there anything that that in, our, in, in terms of our understanding of AB 1127 that frames up what it means and what that definition of having been a victim of bullying ties to uh, as in specific to you've been a victim because another student has actually been disciplined under 48900R versus a more broad and perhaps amorphous meaning just falling under our policy for anti-bullying in general
1: um the uh the new statute does include some parameters for um when a student has kind of laid the framework to be um, able to um, ask for this request for the transfer, um they define a victim of bullying as a student who's been determined to have been a victim by an investigation according to the safe places to Learn Act, which is you know found in the ed code two thirty four point one so it's not as but it's not as strong as having to find that a um, student has been disciplined for it under 48900 but instead um, that it has been part of this investigation um, of an act of, of an alleged act of bullying so it's not just um, it's something more than just a student claiming it claiming that they've been bullied but not necessarily as um, strict as requiring that another student has been disciplined for that action
0: Josh, were there some issues in this law in terms of uh, in a heightened obligation in terms of transportation uh, in this situation, too, if a student transfers? Yeah,
2: the law, the law actually requires the district of enrollment to provide transfer uh, transportation assistance to certain transfer students. And essentially the, the parent or the guardian can request for this assistance, and then the district of enrollment would need to provide it. To transfer a victim of uh, bullying, uh, provided that the student is eligible for free or reduced price meals. So it kind of ties it to that eligibility um, through uh, free and reduced price meals. Now that may shift uh, in light of the pandemic. So I'm not quite sure where the, you know, whether there's going to be a subsequent change to that. but ultimately, you know, we're looking at those kids who have that socioeconomic need um and then there's transportation that would be required by the school district of enrollment uh for those students to to make this transfer happen.
0: Got it. Got it. Uh any other uh, bills that I would, uh, that that made it through during the uh the pandemic that that either of you think we should highlight for our listeners?
1: Well, another one that relates that relates to the um the annual notice also is just kind of the scope of um, the uh, reasons why a student could file a UCP complaint. Um, and as we know over the years, this list of you know, what uh, claims are eligible for filing a UCP complaint has gotten longer and longer. It used to be fit on one page and now we're up to, I don't know, three or four pages. But um, now under this, um, these new provisions from last year, the list has gotten a little bit shorter And that is um, to say that for um, complaints that students have regarding special education, child nutrition programs, Williams complaints, which are generally about the status of facilities, and uh, state preschool health and safety issues, those items are no longer gonna be under the list of uh, claims that um, a student may file a UCP complaint for. Um, instead, those are going to be handled, the process for those are going to be handled under um, regulations, either you know federal or state regulations, depending on the, um, the focus of those provisions. Um, so again, this is something that would require a policy to be updated. We can eliminate some things, remove some things from that list. And then also these are often included in the uh, in the annual notice also, so that would require an update to the annual notice now going forward. And th- this too is one of those it, it you know is it became effective in the middle of um, the middle of the year, so um, new school year, but um, middle of the calendar year, so one that you know last July we were busy thinking about other things than um, these complaint procedures. So now it's something we need to double check on and make sure we've got it covered here.
0: Right, and certainly the time for, for districts as they conclude this school year and perhaps are doing finishing touches on their parent-student handbook or their annual notice, it would be the time to, to capture that, whereas potential policy changes don't necessarily have to come quite as quickly. But uh, I think it's a good thing to know at this point. What about as we look ahead to twenty one twenty two? It's hard to believe, twenty one twenty two. here we come. As far as the school year, what are um, issues we think are likely to be uh, legal or legislative uh, items that will impact school districts coming into the next school year?
1: Well, um, certainly um, the the ever changing question about face masks is going to be a, is going to continue to be a question for next year and depending on you know it seems like what what time of the day you ask that question you may get a different answer <laughs>
0: right so josh where where you know remind our listeners knowing that by the time they hear this sometime next week there may be a whole new slew of stuff but where are we now on face masks what are you hearing as we look look ahead
2: yeah well i should start by clarifying that we're recording this on june 3rd uh, 2021 which you know we have a different guidance on june 4th Uh, after this recording, but the current lay of the land is that uh, CDPH, the California Department of Public Health, uh, their guidance and their orders uh, still have the force of law. And that force of law is given to uh, CDPH by the governor through the executive orders that were issued at the start of the pandemic last year uh, under the Emergency Services Act. So as long as there's still a state of emergency, that executive order still has effect, which then in turn makes the CDPH guidance still mandatory. Uh, So until that state of emergency goes away, um, we're still expecting that CDPH is going to be issuing school-specific guidance for next school year. Uh, Currently, the current guidance in effect was issued on January 14th, 2021, and last updated in late March and has not been updated to reflect the idea that has been talked about by centers for disease control and prevention cdc and cdph uh, in other forums non-school related forums about fully vaccinated individuals so we're still waiting on pins and needles to see um, what the new cdph rules will be for schools for next year Um, but they at least have Promulgated a an outlook document that they've posted online, saying we expect that as regulations and restrictions for other parts of the economy and other businesses go away, the focus will turn to the schools, uh, since many of the students will not be eligible for the vaccine. Um, the FDA, uh, you know, has not yet uh, provided full authorization for the COVID-19 vaccines. Instead right now they're currently under emergency use authorization, um, but only uh, for ages 12 and up at this point in time. So the next step would be to see emergency use authorization given to children from ages two and up. And then hopefully soon we'll see those, uh, the emergency use authorization convert into full authorization that doesn't require the state of emergency anymore. At that point, we'll probably see some changes in the conversation to talk about whether or not there needs to be any mandatory student vaccination requirements. Uh, right now, those requirements are listed in the health and safety code and do not include the COVID 19 vaccine. And since it's only authorized for the K 12 student age groups under emergency use authorization, uh, right now it doesn't seem like it would be. Um, wise to enact that that authorization at, or that, that mandatory requirement at this moment. But we'll start to see potentially a shift on that uh, up in Sacramento uh, sometime next year.
0: So at this point, um, remains the case that students are not obligated to be vaccinated, uh, that our students 12 and up are eligible to do so. Um, and there's the possibility that we might see differing differing guidance contingent upon whether or not adult or student is vaccinated. Is, is that what you would potentially anticipate at this point? Or am I speaking out of school?
2: I think that's right. And I think we're going to see guidance that is specific to schools and applies to students, um, but may only be present during that um, that setting, so we could have children ages uh, up to 18 who are required to wear a mask according to CDPH um, because they're not they're either not fully vaccinated yet or they're, it's not eligible uh, for some of those students uh, to become vaccinated, and so those face mask rules may still be in effect. Um, but if they go to the park, if they go to a church or some other religious service, or they go to a business, to a shopping mall, they might not have to wear a mask if they're fully vaccinated. So um, if that's the case where where it's based on the setting rather than vaccination status, I, I see that being a, a significant issue um, from a logic perspective, if, you, if you're you're Telling students you know you have to wear a mask on campus even though you're fully vaccinated, but you don't have to if you're going to go to the theater um, it just doesn't seem to make logical sense that that's still linked to a health and safety measure to prevent the spread of the virus, a very contagious virus so interesting I can, I can, um, agencies thinking about whether or not they need to follow the rules or not um, and trying to push back potentially on the state or those types of requirements. But ultimately it's going to depend on what actually does the guidance say and how how does it distinguish between setting of the school versus other settings and versus uh, fully vaccinated individuals versus other non-vaccinated individuals.
0: Yeah, and as as we said earlier too, and I expect we'll say it again a couple more times before we're done. Um, we have that June fifteenth date coming as far as the reopening of the state, which everyone is waiting to to see what the new guidance looks like in that respect, and and likely at that point more broadly uh, to our our businesses and and otherwise. But how that interacts with mirrors or is different from. Subsequent guidance or, or guidance issued at the same time as it pertains to schools is all something that we're going to know a whole lot more about in the next two weeks. And then and then we'll need, know more and probably something different a month out from that. And so I think the key is to continue to, to measure and monitor what the state is saying, knowing that as we head into this summer, and the broader quote-unquote reopening of the state, that, that there's there's going to be new stuff coming out, yet to be seen what exactly that is relative to schools.
2: And I should make one other point, which is that um, it, the guidance that is being promulgated by CDPH, there's a wrinkle for buses and face mask requirements on buses. Uh, President Biden issued Executive Order uh, 13998 when he first was inaugurated, which became effective February 1st and requires face masks on public transportation. And then there was a subsequent CDC order that required it on any public conveyance and CDC issued FAQs shortly afterward that said that that included public school buses. Hmm. So Currently, it's not just CDPH guidance on, on face masks, although that is the case largely for most COVID-19 mitigation measures but there is just this one caveat that for face masks on school buses there is actually a federal order uh, and law that's in place that would also need to be altered to change face masks on that particular mode of transportation
0: got it got it ruth anything to add in there about face masks, mask and and immunizations
1: i guess uh only just to say that uh to stay tuned because things are uh, changing quickly and um, because a lot of these uh, requirements have been driven by you know, local and county um, health departments, um, some of these things may be different for your district depending on what county you are in. So there can't necessarily be a blanket statewide rule on some of these things.
0: Yeah, and turning from there, tell me about where we are at this moment in time. I know there's a couple of bills, but in particular, let's start off AB 104, which we've been keeping our eye on since January.
1: Yeah, AB 104 has changed a lot since January. Um, At the beginning, uh, this was a bill that was gonna require districts to uh, adopt a new um, retention policy for their students as of, I think, June 1st, I think, was the first deadline. And that was causing a lot of um, angst among um, school district administrators is in terms of how we were going to implement all that, especially with students being absent for much of the year or, you know, away from school for much of the year, not having the uh, usual testing data available and all those types of things. And um, since then, the bill has uh, kind of been uh, watered down, I'd say, a little bit in terms of how what the requirements are going to be. But the, the purpose of it, I think, behind it. Is to uh, provide um, more opportunities for, um, uh, for students to catch up on, on instruction they may have missed while they were away from campus. And so uh, currently um, the, the bill um, allows for students who are considered eligible students and as of uh, earlier this week um, an eligible student is one who has not um, passed uh, at least one, a half of their coursework. And that is defined as being deficient as being defined as having a DF or a no pass in at least half of their coursework. So originally the bill was for uh, all students who were in enrolled for the school year and now we're down to um, students have just had and um, not had success in half of their classwork.
0: Ruth, uh, uh, just real quick before you move along. So, w- with that standard, DF or no pass, which we all know is you know very familiar for high school students and for that matter, m- middle school students. Um, do we know is this as the law added or subtracted from that de- definition over time in terms of how it might apply to an elementary school student?
1: Well, it, like I said, originally the, um, the language of the bill was for a student who was entering kindergarten um, in the 2021 20, school year in, in any of the grades one through 12. So, um, because now we are limited to those students who have earned D, F, or no pass. It doesn't specifically say that elementary students aren't included, but I think there could be a—you um, can kind of read between the lines that that's what was intended. Um, that it's not necessarily going to be um, those just um, or not going to be all the students, but just those in those upper grades. But I will—but I will say though that this is intended. The the this new uh, statute is intended as a supplement to whatever the districts already had in place in terms of retention so it doesn't mean that you know for 2021 all elementary kids are automatically going to be promoted if there were if the student still did not meet the promotion standards under the existing district policy then that would still be available it's just um, that this layer may not be added on to it for the for that age level.
0: If passed, is it viewed that this is, you know, I I see the language there that you just referred to. It's supplemental to, doesn't replace the existing model policy or policy the district has with retention of students. It's usually the retention promotion policy that covers all those standards in one place. Is the idea, would the idea be at this point that if this law is enacted, you make a temporary supplemental amendment to that policy that's intended to sunset at the conclusion of this year or is the mechanics potentially a resolution?
1: I think it could be either. I mean like originally it was uh, termed a supplemental policy um, but those again that has been kind of um, not as it's not as specific and as direct at this point. Um, Instead now there has to be um, some procedures that are put in place, but it doesn't it isn't really um, directed at to how that's going to be implemented.
2: I should point out that this uh, this potential addition uh, to the law doesn't actually reference kindergarten retention, which actually has a specific agreement that has to be put in place, and CD is very particular about the actual language that's used in that agreement. It's available on their website. Um, so you want to use that agreement if you've got a kin- kindergartner who wants to repeat kindergarten. Um, so I find it odd that there's no reference to that ed code 46300 uh, that has that language that talks about that. So that's just something to keep in mind to consider that you're going to still need to walk through that kindergarten continuation agreement process. Right. If you're going to go through this retention. Well, which also it's connected,
0: right, Josh, to the idea that kindergarten itself is not a compulsory year of education. But once you turn six and are age eligible for first grade, you have an absolute right to that enrollment should you choose your parent, the student's parents choose to do so, um, which is is one of the things in a year like this. I could see parents say because there were there were a large number and I know that's what we were talking about in January with this bill large number of parents because of the covid situation and distance learning decided not to enroll their child in kindergarten um for this school year and, and bypass that because of the challenges it would have posed for a child of that grade level and so there's certainly the potential if not significant interest of some parents to have their child go through kindergarten in essence, late, and as you're saying, to do that uh, requires some specific eyes' uh, to be dotted and T's to be crossed. but in the meantime, any parent whose child is age eligible for first, if they want to start first grade, they have a legal entitlement to that, regardless of whether or not they skipped kindergarten during COVID. That's correct. Ruth, anything more on on A B104 and uh, uh, maybe apart from a prediction? where you think it's going to the extent they continue to amend it, including up until yesterday. And, and if nothing there, maybe transition to the SB 545 bill.
1: Um, I I guess just to say that uh, if uh, AB 104 does become law as it's at least currently written or close to what it's currently written, um, there is a a timeline that's included in that. And um, again, if a student is going to be retained, it's, um, the uh, retention is kind of initiated by the parent and uh, within 30 days of receiving that request then the district is required to uh, meet with the parent and talk with them about uh, learning recovery options, you know, interventions, um, and those types of things and, at, and letting those students access again those courses where they did receive um, a DRF F in, in the school year. Um, also talk about um, talk about what the what the consequences are of retaining a student and um, the Department of ed is to be pro- is to be putting together and preparing information in that respect and providing it to districts putting it on their website um, by before the end of the summer here so that parents or school districts have that available if they want to, um, if if they do have those requests from the parents, and then um, within ten days after the consultation with the parents, then the district is to make the decision and communicate that to the parents as to whether or not the student will be retained or not. So there is a timeline and a process, but not um, but not a strict requirement for a policy. Um, and then a couple other provisions and kind of related. but separate from retention um, is that there are some provisions in AB 104 that allow a parent to request that a student who uh, earned a grade um, you know deficient grade can have that grade converted to a pass or no pass grade so presumably you know it would you can expect that a student who earned a C that doesn't want that to negatively affect their G- GPA may ask instead that that grade just be converted to a pass. And so it won't be, um, won't be a negative effect on their GPA. And the bill also includes a lot of information about how the universities are to address that if they see those grade changes on, their, um, on the student's transcript. And then finally, um, this bill allows some additional time for students who uh, were not uh, who um, were not on track to graduate in all four years to give them a little bit more time to uh, satisfy those requirements and to exempt uh, their junior and senior students from certain coursework that um, maybe. Specific to the district and is not a statewide requirement but instead a local requirement. So these provisions and, uh, are intended to kind of um, eliminate those additional, like higher standard requirements, or to provide the older students additional time to complete the requirements uh, in order to meet the graduation requirements.
0: And so the that's the one, Ruth. That actually may permit, and as stated in the statute, a fifth year of instruction. Right, of, in essence, a fifth Correct. year of high school. Mm-hmm. Uh, right. Uh, on the on the uh, the grade change, changing it to a pass, no pass. I just note that would be a new Ed Code four nine zero six six point five, which follows four nine zero six six, which exists now and and relates to a student's grade and the challenge to a student's grade, but the language in the existing 49066 is explicit as to the necessary involvement and opportunity for input by the student's teacher. In that scenario, whereas this change I'm noting, unless I'm missing it in the bill, um, the the ability to request and have a grade change to pass, no pass, is a district level decision without teacher input. Am I understanding that right?
1: Right. There's no um, provision in this new bill that would require teacher input. As there is in the existing statute
0: got it, got it. Well, another one that um, it seems like it's heading it's it's because it continues to meander and hasn't been killed seems like it has at least a, a fair chance at passage. but again, um, all keep an eye, keep an eye for updates it could be a totally different bill by next week, right
1: Correct yes-huh.
0: What about SB545?
1: Well, interestingly, you know, as we've watched a b one o four meander along as you say um five forty five has gone through some changes also and just recently has been made an urgency bill which which kind of communicates that oh we better get this done before <laughs> before too long if we're gonna make it happen um but this again is uh is very similar in a lot of respects, and that is um based on a parent request for a student to uh, be retained for this, the next school year. And in, if that happens, then um, the school is, you know, to offer uh, specific interventions for the student uh, to allow them to recover what they may have lost by not being on campus, um, allow them to retake certain classes that they received a D or an F in, provide information to the parent about, you know, the effects of interventions and um, those types of things. So in especially in response to the requirement in AB 104 to have this consultation with the parent, many of the things that are included in um, SB 545 would um, correlate to that and would overlap. So um, we can imagine that there would be one consultation where all of these things are covered um, at one time regarding the um, effects of retention and the other pieces that are included here
0: seems like this one unlike 104 does explicitly make clear its application to kindergarten through 12th grade correct yeah it's interesting i i I think i fully agree with you that there's elements here that come that overlap and so, if this one's been made mm-hmm. urgency, what does that say about AB 104? If SB 545 is made urgency and and um, has significant components that are duplicative of AB 104, but who well, knows, AB 104
1: right? has been urgent for a while. Oh, it ha-
0: okay, so it is. It's <laughs> yeah. In that... So,
1: um, so yeah, it makes me wonder if they're going, if there's going to be any effort to try to pull the two of them together and make them, you know, make it into one or Um, If there's going to be um, kind of competing sections uh, 545 adds a new ed code section also so um, at least they're not modifying the same sections which we've seen in the past which really makes it confusing Um, we will have separate uh, code sections affected by these two bills but um, but it will be interesting to see how they will fit together and if they can work harmoniously together to um, achieve their intended results here.
0: You know, I think uh, everyone should monitor those two. And, of course, if something comes out, especially if it is of an urgent nature as far as its effective date, we'll certainly be issuing a client news brief or new news briefs on on point. As we uh, try to project forward to twenty one twenty two and independent from pending legislation at this moment, or perhaps related to other pending legislation, what are some of the uh, big issues or bills that are still kind of up in the air that you two think are also items that our listeners should keep their eyes on?
2: Well, son I want to make one one last comment on retention um, and so I'm thinking that uh, one thing that the districts and Uh, local educational agencies can do this summer if they do get a retention request is to uh, use their summer programs that they have been working on developing this year and working with the families. I mean, if we're looking at the the shortest timeline being 30 days from the request to make a retention decision, that to me seems like an LEA could move that child into one of those summer programs evaluate how well they're doing at getting accelerated back up to addressing some of the reten- the uh, reasons for why, why retention might be made. And that would really turn a lot of the discussion about what should happen regarding last year into talking about grades rather than holding back the student a grade. Uh, CDE and its FAQs on retention, they're saying, you know, really uh, the weight of evidence is that retaining students does not produce higher achievement. It actually results in higher high school dropout rates. You've got developmental issues because you've, you're having kids in lower grade levels, uh, experiencing puberty earlier than other students. So there's a lot of cascading effects with retention. So I would I would express caution and making going full force and just approving retention requests, but instead utilizing the existing summer programs to make a fully informed decision and in working with the family to, to make it work for each kid and see where they're at.
0: Those are some really good points, Josh. Um, so what about uh, your, your, the crystal ball that each of you have in your office? What are, uh, what are other items to think about as we look ahead?
2: Well, I'm looking at the uh, Ethnic Studies Curriculum Bill, uh, Assembly Bill 101. Uh, This bill has been kicked around a couple of years in a row here about whether or not to make Ethnic Studies course a requirement for high school graduation or not. And last year, the Governor Newsom uh, rejected a a similar bill and it's up in front of him again uh, this year, most likely. That's uh, still being worked out by the legislature, but the current language of the bill would would require one semester of ethnic studies to be a graduation requirement uh, by the 2029-2030 20, 20, school year. Hopefully we'll have flying cars by then. Uh, and then to at least offer that course. We
0: better not be still wearing masks by then. Let me put it, let's, let's say that. <laughs>
2: and the, and to at least offer the course by 2025-2026 school year so in other words you would have to have it be an elective uh starting 20 in 2025 uh for the duration of the decade essentially by the end of the decade then that would need to become a graduation requirement now of course we'll figure out what the final language of the bill will be and whether or not the governor will sign it Last year, he refused to sign a similar bill because the State Board of Education hadn't yet adopted a model curriculum. Well, this year, CDE had, the California State Board of Education has adopted that curriculum. Uh, they did so on March 18th. So presumably, all of the, the, the excuse that the governor had to not sign it in the wake of the George Floyd protests and Black Lives Matter uh, protests that were happening last year is no longer an impediment. Um, so, at this point, uh, it seems like it's on the fast track to being signed, although there is uh, some more hubbub and controversy uh, that's going on right now with a somewhat related topic of critical race theory. And this is something that we're starting to see our school districts and uh, and uh, county offices of education getting questions about uh, from individuals. Most of them are not even from their local communities, but they're from elsewhere in the state or they're from outside the state across the country, uh, asking their schools, are you teaching critical race theory at your campuses? Which is a really strange question because I don't really know of anyone who knew what critical race theory was at the K-12 level, you know, even a month ago. Uh, really, it's a, it's a university academic uh, sort of idea uh, to really, the crux of it is to say that systemic racism exists, and it's looking at past institutional history and laws that were implemented after the Civil War and after the Civil Rights Act, and how uh different racism is sort of present within different laws or different uh, ways that we. Uh, design freeways to be built and zoning restrictions to be given. And it's looking into that aspect of a kind of a high level uh, university course discussion. And uh, it, right now, though, there is a group of of people, I guess you would say, uh, that are looking at expanding this definition to include things like just talking about uh, teaching about race or teaching about multiculturalism and respect for other cultures, and I think it's it's a it's a problem because the definitions uh, are different depending on who you talk to about what critical race theory is. And It's putting districts and uh, schools in a very difficult crossfire of trying to figure out, okay, this thing's not even defined by the education code. We have state curriculum standards that we have to meet, and none of that says critical race theory. But we do teach the golden rule, which is to be respectful to others as you would be respectful, you would want to be respected yourself and to treat everyone with respect and to not make decisions based on someone's race or someone's religion or someone's ethnicity, but to make individual decisions based on uh, the kid's circumstances and their history of discipline or their um, academic background and really kind of working to address equity issues uh, that our students experience, because they come from different walks of life and come from different backgrounds and different socioeconomic situations. And so I I think that this is going to be an interesting conversation moving forward as we take a look at things like restorative justice and social-emotional learning and student discipline changes and how one group might think that that is related to trying to assign some sort of guilt uh, to a particular race or ideology, uh, when really it's just about trying to create a more inclusive, a more friendly, and more welcoming environment at school, uh, without necessarily calling it critical race theory.
0: Right. No, I think that you know that we're seeing we're seeing that um, in the headlines, and uh, I know you're aware of Josh and have notified you know me and others of different laws passed in other states. Uh, kind of an amorphous subject at the time, again, because of there really isn't a concrete meaning or definition for it in the context of uh, present K-12 education in California and the standards which are required to be taught. But I, I, I fully agree with you that that'll be something that we hear about and we'll be helping clients with and talking them through. What 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 else is out there? I know that some um, kindergarten and TK stuff is, is continues to linger.
2: Yeah, there's uh, two bills that kind of work in tandem. There's Assembly Bill 22, which would expand transitional kindergarten to all four-year-olds. And uh, the governor actually made, as part of his budget proposal in mid-May, that there would essentially be a phasing in of four-year-olds that would start with the 22-23 school year, and then by, by 24, uh, 25 school year, uh, all four-year-olds would be able to receive transitional kindergarten or would be re- required to or be, g- be given that option. Um, and then Senate Bill 50 would open the California State Preschool Program to ages three and under, presumably taking the spots of the four-year-olds who are now going to be in transitional kindergarten. Um, But, the, uh, you know, it'll be interesting to see how this works out because those little ones, they require a little bit different services than your four-year-olds. So uh, what that means for preschool programs and making sure that they're meeting licensing requirements and staffing requirements for that new age range uh, might be challenging for some folks.
0: Ruth, you have suggested, and I completely agree with you, that we need to do a standalone podcast as it relates to the issue of virtual instruction and independent study. And that's something we'll start to queue up with some of our team members who are doing a lot of work there. But do you want to just very briefly touch on um, kind of the, the four corners of that issue, which is something that districts are grappling with up and down the state right now?
1: Sure. Um, there, As, as uh, districts were brainstorming about how best to reach their students during the uh, pandemic when when they could not attend campus. Um, Some districts were exploring more the option of independent study and now that uh, students are some students have gotten used to not having to uh, you know get dressed and show up on campus and so they are looking for other alternatives uh, other than to return to campus even though who may be able to do that in the fall and one of the options here is that districts are looking at is offering the independent study um, uh, option for students um, and there are um, provisions in um, the trailer bill now uh, that are uh, defining how that will work it won't look exactly like we're used to independent study uh, working oftentimes it was included or used as a way to keep uh, kids current on their instruction when they were out of town for um, a two-week vacation or something like that, very limited uh, amount of time. But now we're looking at how are we going to make that work in terms of a program or in terms of um, just a, a particular course um, along the way. So it's going to be different, but um, it may very well be an alternative that districts are want to explore more to be ready for the new school year. But again, um, we're kind of waiting to see how the final details turn out from um, the budget trailer bill because there are provisions included in there that will uh, affect how we move forward from here.
0: That's very helpful. So, so to, to wrap it all up, keep an eye out for a standalone podcast on that subject most likely to come out when the trailer bill makes its way through. And we, we have concrete conclusions as to how that's structured. In the meantime, for our listeners, laws that passed while the pandemic was occurring that you should make sure you're up to speed with include that related to new rights for victims of bullying, uh, as well as changes to the uniform complaint uh, process in terms of what's covered there, both of which will have impacts on your potentially policies, but as well as your annual notice uh, keep an eye out for the ever-changing landscape, and I hope we're pretty darn close to to accurate on this by the time this comes out next week. But face masks, immunizations, changes in guidance forthcoming, um, but know that that is a subject that you're going to have to have a good handle on going into the next school year. AB 104, SB 545, also bills that could impact your students' rights uh, to to try to capture back learning loss that may have occurred during this past past school year ethnic studies curriculum and uh, critical race theory issues that are likely to be raised by your constituents, and then these kindergarten bills. I always enjoy talking to you two, whether it's in a very complicated opinion scenario for uh, for a client or just catching up on how you guys are doing. It's great to see both your faces. We're on Zoom right now while while we're doing this. Thanks for making the time today, um, and hopefully we can do this again soon, uh, much sooner than the break was between the last time I did podcast with either of you.
1: Maybe we'll even see you in person.
0: In person? <laughs> masked well, up hopefully
2: we won't have to wear our masks by then right
0: right That's right hopes, hopefully so thank you so much for tuning in to another one of lozano smith's podcasts we encourage you to visit our podcast page at lazanosmith.com forward slash podcast there you'll find links and additional details on some of the topics we discussed today also make sure to, to subscribe to our podcast so you don't miss an episode thanks guys
1: thanks sloan thank you
0: If you have any questions about this topic, please contact the host of this episode or an attorney at any of our eight offices throughout California. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. As the information contained in this podcast is necessarily general, its application to a particular set of facts and circumstances may vary. For this reason, this podcast does not constitute legal advice we recommend that you consult with your counsel prior to acting on the information you heard.